to say that. The podcast for your big questions, get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jed Brewer. I'm nitrogen infused. I mean, that's probably technically true on a, like a chemical level. Yeah, totally. That's what I meant. Maybe, maybe a bit of a, a dramatic way of... Infused might be a dramatic term for breathing in and out, but... <laughs> it sounds like something like a TikTok fitness influencer would come up with this to sound more hardcore. I wake totally. up every morning and start infusing my body with basic nitrogen. <laughs> you mean... Do you mean breathing in and out? Doesn't doesn't sound as good as the way I put it. Yeah. Well, look, dude, it's important to put your best foot forward. And sometimes your eyes look, I don't have a lot of best foots to put out there. So it's about dressing up what you do have in a way where people can dig it, man. Absolutely. Occasionally you have to uh, engage in a bit of personal marketing. Absolutely. Dude, I my personal brand is booming. Like the, the, the brand, like, I don't know with who, but I just assume that the brand of Jed is, you know, like, like if you compare, you know, our brand, um, you know, approval to like Coca-Cola, I assume that both involve numbers. So sure. that's pretty good. Similar in that way. Yeah. Year over year growth in the, in the Jed Brewer brand. <laughs> that's right. That's poised, right. Poised to go to market. Well, dude, when I, I mean, like my understanding is that one of the ways you evaluate brands is this whole, you know, would you recommend this to a friend? That That's like one of the, sure. the key indicators. And when I sit down with people and I look them in their eye sockets and I say, would you recommend Jed Brewer to a friend? Well, they're generally confused and kind of like, buddy, where's this coming from? I don't know what you're talking about. But periodically, some of them out of just sheer desire to end that conversation go, sure. And that's a Yes. So we yep. have some data saying that the brand of Jeb Brewer is as good as it gets. Yes, I would recommend that. And also pull around, please. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's real world market research you can trust. Absolutely. One of the, the, the small joys I take in life, as we all must in our, you know, in the world we live in. I don't know if you're ever watching a YouTube video and before it happens, it'll pop up and be like, which of these four things have you heard of? And they're all like pretty well-known brands. Every time I pick none of them, just because I want there to be some data point where somebody's going, well, he hasn't, who hasn't heard of Ford? What's going on? What are we doing wrong? <laughs> is, that, is that one of those upstart electric vehicle companies that like only gearheads hear about? You know, they're not going to work out. Like they're going to fail in the next six months, but they're trying to make a big splash. Is that, is that what Ford is? I assume so. I only, I only like an Edsel. I drive an Edsel. <laughs> I don't trust these newfangled cars that you don't hand crank to start. Well, n- nor should you, nor should you. I mean, uh, computerization is a tool of uh, demonocracy. I'm almost sure someone was making that point at the time. <laughs> at least when you crank it to start, that's 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 working with your hands is in the Bible. This this oh. turning a key is sloth. Oh, that's good, man. That's that's quite good. that that is well executed legalism, sir, and I commend you. That's right. If you, if only we had been 80 years before and this was going out over uh the tinny radio waves of the American yeah. South, we could have been a hit. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Lee's not with us this week. He hasn't just been sitting politely while we go on these <laughs> several unhinged tangents. He's uh he is uh recently returned from 
Young Life Camp at Young Life's beautiful Carolina Point. Ooh. And uh, if you're a high schooler, it's the best week of your life. It's it's fun. It's adventure. It's positivity. It's being poured into by caring adults. It's hearing the gospel in a way that is uh, low pressure, relatable to your life, and uh, filled with a relational backbone. If you're an adult who has to do that for seven days, you need a rest afterwards. And we're that's fair furnishing Lee with that. But we do have uh, your fine questions. But first, we have what I would call a prestige drama emergency. Cue the overpriced music. That's right. Uh, it's recently uh, come to our attention that there's a, a, I believe it's called The Chosen. It's like a, somebody made, you know, a Christian company made a, a series about Jesus's life. And I believe it's already produced three seasons. And it was recently picked up by a, a network broadcaster. I can't remember which one, but somebody's going to actually be putting it on the airwaves. And I was I glanced at an interview with one of the executives who greenlit this decision, and the phrase he used about the life of Jesus of Nazareth was, "It's really the ultimate IP." No, it's the greatest story ever told, baby. How can you go wrong? That's a green light. It's the greatest IP ever copyrighted <laughs> by Rupert Murdoch, as we covered in a previous episode. Yeah, uh, and also yeah, speaking of Rupert Murdoch, in some ways. This uh, coincided with the ending of the uh, headline prestige HBO drama Succession, and that fired the creative imagination of our own Jed Brewer, who has come up with a Christian prestige drama pitch. Jed, I hand it over to you. I present to you, thank you, thank you, I present to you, wait for it, apostolic succession. Yes. That's right, y'all. We're talking about, so as you are doubtlessly aware, apostolic succession is the general term for, um, particularly, I think, more in like the Catholic and Orthodox churches, where they kind of link back um, various bishops and religious potentates all the way back generally to either Peter or Paul, right? And so so Jesus said to Peter, you know, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, right? And then at some point, Peter kind of passed the baton to somebody, and that person passed the baton to somebody, and eventually that becomes the Pope's, right? And one of those dudes built a giant building with a gold ceiling. (laughs) Yes, he did. And um, similarly, uh, like we see a kind of sort of apostolic succession in the Bible where like we kind of see Paul passing the baton to Timothy and Titus. So like that's that's the term apostolic succession, which is like a really fancy word for a really, really simple idea. But you should forget all of that because we're talking about apostolic succession we're talking about a prestige drama that's basically non-stop profanity but it's all guys competing to be uh, what do you think the next pope like what what are we doing here like what are or are we going back in time and it's like somewhere else like we got a lot of options here Ooh, i yeah. mostly just had the title period dramas are big right so it's like yeah maybe a, a early medieval pope thing well you have the avignon papacy that's pretty good. So you That's pretty do good. Going back and forth of, yeah, who can? I think the main problem we have here, which I think you've solved as HBO does with profanity, is yeah. essentially what you would have is a bunch of people either looking for or making up documentation that shows a lineage back to Peter or Paul. But yeah. if in between that they're undercutting each other with sarcasm and kind of uh, mental, kind of doing mental warfare on each other and really coming up with extremely creative uses of uh, several 
words that even hinting at would get this show ripped off the airwaves. Um, <laughs> I think you can have something there. Yeah. So, I mean, like, just to make sure we're on the same wave, basically what I am um, picking up, I, I think what we're describing for the concept for the show is Game of Thrones meets a parent-teacher conference. Like, that's basically oh. what we're talking about. Yeah, I like that. Game of Thrones, but instead of dragons, it's really uh, veiled, uh, gossipy dropping of hints about judging someone else's thing they brought to the church potluck or whatnot. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. But in the spirit of prestige drama, like shot really well, like shot like on film. Oh, yeah. Which it, they did not need to do. That's a waste of money. But shot on film and scored by like James Horner. I mean, like we really overspent on this drastically. But, you know, it feels like much more than it actually is. Well, now that you've brought up the, the time honored American church tradition of wasting a ton of money. The other option is to um, do this as like the prestige drama version of the Righteous Gemstones, where it's oh. the the mega church, the large membership church pastor is stepping down, and who's going to get that gig? Oh, dude, that that would work, man. So the worship that pastor is forming a you know an alliance with the with the youth guy to take out the associate pastor. So he doesn't get it. Cause they hate him. Yeah, that would work, man. Okay. Okay. I can dig it. I can dig it. And you know, if it were like kind of a Pentecostally church, I mean, like they actually use the term apostle pretty regularly there you go. for their church leadership. So, I mean, we've got the apostolic succession thing there. Kind of high production value, but you know, whereas in game of Thrones, it's, Somebody gives a cutting word at court or succession as the boardroom. It would be somebody sneaking in just passive aggressive jabs to like the announcement section. Yeah. yeah I, wow, right. give, give a hand for worship pastor Tony. That was great. Wasn't it? I, you know, some people don't like uh, that. Putting in the, oh, the over contemporary worship setting. They think we should stick tradition, but I, I think it's good that Tony tries things <laughs> anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know the yeah. the guy who's trying to sabotage the the youth pastor like setting up kids with questions they know the dude doesn't want to answer. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. That's good. I have a prayer request after last week's potluck and really enjoying Sister Mildred's jello salad. I've had a terrible stomach flu for days. Anyway, I'm sure those are unrelated. Your prayers, please. Yeah, exactly. So but all all of these things followed by a, you know, an overly dramatic music sting, yeah, and that's several right. cuts back to the person who's just been, um, just been stung, and then yeah. a lot of, I think a lot of scenes of the, the person who's, at a disadvantage coming off stage into one of like their, backstage in one of the green rooms or whatever and having a Tony Soprano like rage, yes. Yes, that's right. That's right. Well, and the question with um, prestige dramas, you've always got to figure out how to work in um, completely needless nudity that has absolutely nothing to do with the narrative. And yes. I think the the backstage rage out gives us a good thing because they can kind of come back and just rip their clothes off like they're getting back into their normal people clothes. And they just they just stand there, you know, in that moment, giving their speech. I mean, th this has it all, dude. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're uh, to watch and believe 
which there's no reason not to. Some of the documentaries about your, your Hill songs and whatnot, there might be a lot of opportunities for some, somewhat gratuitous nudity. Hey! That's right. We're going to have to have a, a very significant, uh, ironically styled glasses budget, even by HBO standards. <laughs> The the only thing that we don't have that, you know, it's not true in, in all prestige dramas, but it's 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 very commonly true. And I'm not sure I see a good window here is really over the top gratuitous violence. Um, I'm not immediately sure how to work that into apostolic succession. Yeah, I mean, you could just you could just have a, a, a brawl break out at any point, but that's not that's not really that doesn't hit the the level of prestige drama i think i think we need a church softball game or like picnic with field day games where yeah. we can work in a lot of like you know sneaky elbows to the ribs during the the egg toss or whatever yeah yeah no i i got it well actually Okay, so this is um, mildly nerdy, but like I think I think because part of what you need is the gross out factor, right? Sure. So I think is this in the Lord of the Rings movies? I think the character's name is Denethor, but the one that does the real creepy biting into the um, tomato. Yeah. Right. Like there's going to be a lot of potluck dinners in Apostolic Succession. It feels like if we can get the same cinematographer that got the creepy tomato, like we could do a lot of that and really make that work. True. I think there's also a lot of um, things you could do just from a cinematography standpoint of, yeah, otherwise generally mild things that wouldn't have a huge physical toll. But if you shoot them in the right way, like, you know, we're getting set up for the potluck and pastor, you know, associate pastor A, who really wants this job, is carrying eight chairs. Associate pastor B is behind him and he knows that means he has to carry ten. And you really do kind of the, uh, what was the, the George Clooney movie for like three Kings where it like did a, it, I think a pioneer kind of, you show a guy getting shot and you do the zoom in and show here's the bullet ripping through the muscle tissue and whatever. Yeah. And it's yeah, that, yeah, yeah. but it's some guy's rotator cuff. Cause he, he knows <laughs> he has to carry more chairs than the person before him. <laughs> and you just hear the, the snapping. <laughs> wow. Wow. Look, man, I, I can't wait to start tuning in for Apostolic Succession. Th- this sounds to me like a thrill a minute. That's right. And I can't wait for whatever uh, British character actor who's mainly known for screaming curse words that we put in as the the uh, the main uh, pastor. I, like Brian Blessed <laughs> as a pastor. Come on, you're not watching that? <laughs> sure you are. Well, you, you, you bring up a good thing. Who is our ideal cast list for apostolic succession? Like, you know, assuming, I mean, you know, HBO, they got money. So like we can make this happen. Like who, who are we trying to get? I mean, if you're talking about, uh, you know, purely trying to make a wave, I think there's something to be said for just directly porting over the succession cast. Well, there is that. There um, is that. So, yeah, I think there's, there's definitely that. Or also I'm, I mean, I'm, you're always going to get me with uh, people like uh, John Goodman and Danny McBride. So also taking just the exact same Righteous Gemstones cast, but just having them shoot this as if it were a serious drama. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm loving that. 
I'm loving that. I think we've got a hit. I I'm excited, man. You know, it's it may not be the greatest IP of all time, but it's pretty good. That's right. Second best IP of all time is not bad. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. right. Apostolic Secession coming soon to Max or whatever they name it next. You heard it here first. And on that, I will declare emergency off. But, uh, you know, Apostolic Secession on, very hopefully. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I think I can speak for Jed in saying this. We are generally a pro-union as people, pro-organized labor. But, oh, yes. uh, you know, hey, HBO, if you get desperate enough, <laughs> the people actually know how things work. Just you can't come together with them. Hey, throw those little something, something. Absolutely. We're ready, man. Willing to scab for the right price. And who amongst us isn't? <laughs> now, once we do that, uh, we will take all the money, but you better believe we'll spend it as we just thought it was an opportunity to really, you know, share the story of the gospel and yeah. didn't turn that down. And also they packed by a big uh, truck full of money up to my house. Yeah. That too. Yeah. You do the same thing. <laughs> if anything, it's an abject lesson about the fallibility of man. There you go. It was a parable. You're welcome. <laughs> That's right. We did a parable and got paid. So in a lot of ways, we're one-upping previous parable tellers. <laughs> on that note, we're going to move on to your fine questions that came in. If you have a question for us, hang on those all the way to the end, or you can scroll down your episode description, find the links there. Our first question comes in and says, and also possibly dates this episode for ah. a lot of reasons. Four reasons. I've been thinking about whether or not it's okay to be kind of happy when someone dies. Is it, or is that just really wrong? Now it is entirely possible that this person is our question asker here is referring to uh, someone in their life, someone they knew. It's also given recent Pat Robertson, news uh, possible that uh, someone may have been reflecting on what it's like uh, when someone who you are aware of for other reasons uh, shuffles off this mortal coil. And maybe your initial thought is, well, they're not here to do the things they were doing anymore. So hmm. there is that. And if you spend some time on the, on the internet, there's, uh, there, this happened with Robertson. Uh, this happened to a, in a different, uh, measure with the recent passing of Tim Keller. It happens pretty much anytime there's a, a figure of some controversy pops up. Some people will be like, well, this was in, in my estimation and maybe communities I'm part of, I think this was not a, a great person and they did a lot of harm and, you know, some, some version between fully tap dancing on their grave and, well, you know, it's always sad when someone dies, but, and then there's people who uh, swoop in with how, how dare you, you wouldn't, you know, how would you like it if someone came in and did this while you were in, while you were mourning and so I'm like, well, I didn't, A, I didn't really kick down their, their, their grieving family's door and say this, I had this part of a private conversation and also to the best of my knowledge, uh, my Nana never went on TV after nine 11 and blamed gay people. So yeah, if she had, eh, you know, people have the right to have opinions about that. Uh, so Jed, a lot of angles to this, but I, th I think there is that, that core of, uh, I received some form of news and I had an immediate reaction to it. That, um, is a lot of people would say is socially unacceptable. Um, but maybe if I think through that, I can 
I may think I have every reason to feel that way, but I still don't know what to do with that. So, so where would we start kind of untangling this? They're great questions, and we're we're glad that you wrote in. And this is a judgment-free zone, so um, let's be sure that we're clear on that. Yeah. It it's also worth noting, but also that... check out our sister podcast, The Judgment Zone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just all legalistic Jed. Like that's that's the only thing on that <laughs> show. Right. So, I mean, the the thing about an awful lot of Christian media and Christian culture stuff, right, is that the fundamental message is your feelings are bad, and you should feel bad for having them, and then feel bad and about feeling bad. Absolutely, meta guilt. And so I think it's easy to get in a zone of like, I have a feeling and it must be bad, which I think is part of what's going on here. Let's review a couple of things. The first is feelings don't have a moral component. Generally speaking, feelings are neither morally good nor morally bad. They're just feelings. You can do morally good or morally bad things with your feelings, uh, but but the feelings themselves don't, don't have a moral component. And... Uh, Something that goes right along with them is feelings both come and go in a fairly unbidden fashion, right? Like it is, you know, ennui kind of just comes upon you and, um, you know, uh, then leaves at, at its own schedule. And, and so very few of us have just direct control over, I will now feel X and then we feel it. That's that's not often how life works. So we want to remind ourselves that, that feelings kind of do their own thing and that they don't have a moral component. They are not in and of themselves a good thing or a bad thing. And that kind of leads to the, the next thing that we want to look at. And, and if you've not heard this idea before, it can sound kind of a little um, out there, but it's actually super important. And I want to encourage you to think about it. And that is to ask, how are you at recognizing that you have a feeling and not judging it, but also not labeling it as correct either? How are you at simply observing that you are experiencing a feeling and letting that feeling be there without either rejecting it or endorsing it? Because that's actually a pretty valuable life skill and um, will yield a lot of dividends if you can dig it. When we have feelings and we feel like we have to police all of our feelings, I think for most people, that just makes for a very uptight brain um, and a, a, lot of, a lot of mental tension and a lot of anxiety. I think it's a really valuable and really mature thing to be able to simply recognize and observe the feelings that we are having without needing to either endorse them or condemn them. With that in mind, it is a good idea to be aware of which appetites within yourself you are feeding. You have a choice about the person that you become. We're, we're all becoming some kind of a person. Like you as a personized person, none of us are static. We are all evolving day by day, week by week. And the question is, are you becoming the person that you want to become? Do you like the person that you're becoming? Are you feeding the things that will make you into the person that you want to become. That's, and by the way, that's not like a subtle thing of like, you're probably happy that this bad person died and that makes you bad and don't be that person. That's actually not exactly what I'm saying. I'm just saying we're all on a journey becoming someone other than who we used to be. 
is that an intentional process for you where you have a sense of the kind of person that you want to be and you are monitoring the choices that you make to align with the person that you want to be? Let me give you three maxims. They've all been said in a variety of different ways. Um, They are all generally speaking true, and they're mostly old enough that it's hard to say who first communicated these ideas. But there's three maxims that we're thinking about. Here's the first one. You become like the people you spend your time around. Another way of saying this is show me your friends and I'll show you your future. The people that you spend your time around influence who you become. The second is you are what you repeatedly do. If you do a thing enough, it basically just becomes a part of you. And the last one is as a person thinks, so they are. Or as the King James has it, as a man thinketh, so he is. I raise these three things to say you actually have a lot of control over the influences in your life and the person that they shape you into. You have a lot of control over that. You are being shaped. You are being influenced. You're being influenced by your thoughts. You're being influenced by your actions, and you're being influenced by the people around you. Should you feel happy that a fair – that I don't know who you're referring to, so let's assume it was a bad person. Should you – is it okay for you to feel happy that a bad person died? Feelings don't have a moral component. But my question back to you is, do you know the person that you want to become? And are you intentionally choosing your thoughts and your actions and your companions to help you become the person that you want to be? I think that's that's incredibly well put. And while Jed is absolutely right that emotions that immediately come upon us do not have an immoral component or are essentially neither good nor bad. I do think, in addition to what Jed said there, it is useful in a time like that to, if you can, identify what what part of this are you feeling positive or negative about. So this person, I'm going to assume, for the sake of argument, let's use Pat Roberts as an example. You say, well, are you saying, "Ah, I derive joy, I am picturing his, I assume, great-grandchildren, because he was 93, uh, I, I and I picture them sad and missing their their grandpa and I oh how I relish their tears and how I I just wish I could have kicked him in his ninety three year old face myself. Well, that's concerning. Whether that person's yeah. good or bad, these are these are not great feelings to cultivate in oneself, as as Jed is saying. Those are not maybe the best thoughts to hamper. If it's something along the lines of, well, that guy did a lot of stuff that was bad and hurt. Maybe if you grew up in a certain movement, I had to hear about whatever he started blabbering about. Uh, I had to hear about from church or at the dinner table or whatever. And he was going to be on TV forever because he made a deal with uh, some combination of the American broadcasting company and Satan. It's up to you to decide what the ratios are there. Uh, He literally, when uh, the first network that had the 700 club, it was, it got sold up to like freeform or whatever. It was in their contract that the 700 club will be on TV in perpetuity. That's like literally in the contract. Cause he, he may have been evil or whether or not think that he apparently was not dumb about television, but if you say, but he won't be on there anymore. This was literally the only thing that was going to get Pat Robertson off television, saying these things to the people and, you know, telling uh, old, old ladies that they had to keep that. owed that they had to give, and maybe, you know, you're, you have family to that. Okay. 
maybe, you know, that's not exactly the same as being glad someone's dead. You're glad he can't do these things anymore. And there's a little bit of, of nuance on that. But as Jed said, um, those are kind of different. It, it, it falls under the heading of a feeling, but they're often, they're not, I, I would not say that there are thoughts behind the feeling, but the feeling has some thoughts that go along with it. And that's what we can interrogate, maybe um, more so than the feeling. And then there are, and this is a little murkier for some people, there are, um, there's a thing where someone passes away. And if they had a lot of people, this would be more with like a Tim Keller. A lot of people who thought they were mostly positive, there will be a move to to kind of, because people are sad that this person is gone or because out of respect for the past or whatever, there'll be a move, sometimes be a move to say, wasn't this person great in all that they did and is not this world that is left behind worse off for not having this, this Titan of wisdom and morality not with us no more. And there, I think if you are someone who, again, was maybe, maybe did not agree with this person on some LGBT issues or some complementarianism or whatever, or you, you had people try to hurt you and they quoted Tim Keller when they were doing that about why they were right and you were wrong. There's sometimes a natural contrarian reaction to say, maybe this guy sucked. Yep. Cause a lot of the things that people related to me that he said made me feel crappy. So maybe he's crappy and ha ha. That's again, is, is that the most emotionally mature thing in the world? I don't know. It's a feeling. It's perfectly a justifiable one. But again, there's something going on there other than I, this dude had cancer and then died and yay. That's not exactly what's going on necessarily. And that is also not necessarily good or bad, but as Jed's saying, there's, there's once we have the, we have the feeling. And I think the, the temptation is to have the feeling and then have feelings about the feeling. At some point, we need to break out of that and have some thoughts about the feeling because thoughts we can deal with, thoughts we can interrogate, thoughts we, we don't need to judge them one way or the other, um, but thoughts we can, we can dig into a little more than we can with the feelings. And it takes a little while to get there, but that is, I think, a good uh, maxim to add on to the, the great stuff that Jed gave you there. Our second question comes in and says, I hear people talk about how going through hard things makes you stronger in that area of life but I just feel like I'm beat up in those areas. How does it make you stronger to go through something hard? And this is another fantastic question. And I, I think there's a couple of things going on here. Um, one is as happens so often, this is a thing uh, that a writer made a really good quote about. And there's the Hemingway quote of the, the world breaks everyone, but the, the, those are stronger in the broken places. And there's a really good sermon analogy in this, which is, you break a bone and then who knows if this is medically true or not, but you hear people say it all the time. The part where it resets and mints is actually stronger than when you started. Mm. Mm. So you've got a quote by a, a, a Western canon writer and a very uh, pithy uh, sermon analogy. So this is the kind of thing that a lot of people just accept has to be true in all circumstances. Oh Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Jed, let, let us look at, is there, is it true in maybe some circumstances? Is there something we can apply to that? But is there also possible some very, uh, understandable reaction to overreach by our question asker here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's start with some left and right boundaries here because, um, I think that may be helpful before we dive into the details. The first is one of the things that should be clear to everyone at this point um, about 
you know, existing in the age of the internet where you have perspectives from, you know, uh, billions of people that are, that are all floating around in the world is there are almost no solutions that work for everyone. There are almost no approaches that work for everyone. There are almost no maxims that are true in all cases. Um, things being universally applicable and universally helpful are extraordinarily rare. Most of the time, the best we can hope for is an approach that usually works, advice that's usually good, a perspective that's usually true, which is great. Um, but it that should also give us a certain amount of humility of like the fact that advice worked for me doesn't mean it will necessarily work for my friend. The fact that an approach worked for me doesn't mean it will necessarily work for my cousin. And so we, we need to kind of lean into some humility on that. That's kind of one boundary point. The second is, depending on how you mean it, the idea of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger could be true, depending on an awful lot of variables that we'll get into in a moment. But that phrase, as is often the case with pithy phrases summarizing huge concepts is it's reductive to a degree that almost misses the point. And we need to really get into it to see what the point might be. With those boundaries in mind, I'm going to suggest a scenario that's a little bit silly, but it will be useful for us in figuring out what this does and doesn't mean. Suppose that you work some kind of office job and your boss came to you and they said, Jenkins from accounting is retiring next month. I want you to plan the retirement party and make it good. This is what I need you to do. Okay, well, for most of us have never planned a retirement party before. And so your probable reaction to your boss would be, I don't, I don't know anything about it. And your boss might say, I don't care. This is, this is your job. I need you to, to do this. Here's what's, what would happen over the next month is you would do your best effort at planning a retirement party for Jenkins. It would probably be okay, maybe not great, maybe not amazing, but okay. And on the other side of it, you would be able to say to yourself the following, if I had to plan another retirement party right now, I feel like I could probably do a way, way better job of it. And that would almost certainly be true. Your first time doing something hard and complicated is not going to be great. And if you have to do it a second time, you could do it way, way better. That's true for most people most of the time. And if you can dig it, that's the overall lesson of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Let's walk through that together. In an ideal case, which is not always true, when you successfully navigate through a challenging situation, you learn from it. It's not always true. Sometimes you go through an awful thing and you learn nothing because there's nothing to learn. But Often, when you successfully navigate a difficult, challenging situation, you learn from it. That means you have a better sense of the dynamics that are at play. You have a better sense of how to operate within those dynamics. You have a sense of what is possible and what isn't possible. You have a sense of what realistic expectations look like. This is all good, functional stuff, right? You'd never planned a retirement party before. You didn't know how much a retirement cake would cost. Jenkins has been here for 30 years. Do I get like 30 individual candles or to just get a three and a zero? Who do I even ask about these things? Well, now that you've retired, now that you've planned one, you, you have a sense of how some of this works. You could probably do it a little bit easier next time. And because you have a sense of all of this, not in all cases, but often 
that knowledge and experience allows you to be less emotionally impacted by the experience, right? The first time the boss says you got to plan a retirement party, you're probably a little bit freaked out because I don't know how to do that. Where do I even begin? The second time, you're probably less freaked out because you you do know how to begin and you do have a sense of, of how all of this is going to work. If you put all that together, the idea of perspective and knowledge and experience and with all that in mind, not being as emotionally impacted, that all adds up to something kind of sort of like strength. That's that's when you put it all together, it's kind of sort of strength. Strength is not a great summary of all of it. it it's probably closer to just experience, like what doesn't kill you makes you more experienced, but that's not as pithy or as strong as what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So is it true that what doesn't kill you make, makes you stronger? Well, it, it can be kind of, sort of, um, but not necessarily, and not that's probably not the best way to put it. Here's one more thing to look at. One of the key questions in life, like again and again and again, is do you have the skills that are necessary to successfully navigate the situation in which you find yourself? Do you have the skills that are necessary? Skills are learnable. And so much of life boils down to learnable skills. The difficulty with the what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is we have a way of lionizing strength, right? The way that I will deal with tough situations is I will just be strong. That's not a great goal. The way to deal with difficult situations is to be skilled. Skills solve problems. Strength doesn't like inherently solve anything. Like you don't want a heart surgeon who's strong. You want a heart surgeon who's skilled. These are, these are very different. Like this guy, well, I've never done heart surgery before, but if you've seen that thing where they put the boulders up on platforms, I can do that. Like that, that's not a qualification. What do, do you know how to hold a scalpel? Strength in and of itself is not the most useful of things. Skills are helpful. Skills are important. And the key thing is skills are learnable. If you, if you combine skills with experience, if you combine skills with experience with, again, kind of the emotional steadiness that comes from knowing what you're doing, you'll have something that looks like strength, but it will be way, way more useful. My friend, I am so sorry that you're feeling beat up. I really, really, truly am. And I wonder if part of the beat up in this comes from being like, I'm supposed to feel stronger and I don't. There must be something wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with you. Your story is your story. There may be things we could look back at your experience and, and learn some stuff and learn some new skills. But for the moment, I'm sorry that you're feeling beat up. Don't let an overly reductive slogan add to the discouragement that you are feeling. That's all fantastic stuff. I would add to what Jed has given us there. The other kind of analogy you'll hear in the broken bone thing is, uh, you know, if you li- go to lift weights, uh, you know, your, your muscle fibers actually tear apart and then it's in the rebuilding that they become stronger, which I, I think is kind of somewhat accurate. I don't, I don't know. I'm not a physiologist, uh, but here's what I know. If you uh, do way too much weightlifting with no rest time, your muscles will tear and feel bad forever. Yeah. So we're, are we focusing on the right part of that? But I think there is in that, in that analogy, something useful is what kind of another angle on what Jed is saying is there is here's the thing. If you go to the gym, and you can't bench press 200 pounds, but eventually you you kind of work your way up to it and you can. 200 pounds still weighs 200 pounds. Yeah. 
that did not become less of an obstacle. You built up what you needed to overcome said obstacle. And part of that is in that example, raw strength. But yes, a lot of times that's going to be good strategy and things you have learned along the way, which I think are going to be a lot more useful. But as in so many of these kind of pithy little slogans, there's so often skipped over the how. Yep. You say something really bad happens and then you come out of the other side. And also I wonder if mixed up in this is there is a discomfort that a lot of, a lot of cultures have, but I think strictly white American church culture is a big one with the fact that sometimes things don't work out. Yeah. Sometimes they do, you know, but sometimes bad, bad things happen. And then they're just kind of bad for like a long time with not a lot of rhyme or reason. And maybe they get a little better, but then maybe they get bad again. And there is no clean narrative you can put in this in your, your five minute testimony slot in your service. Um, you know, it's the, the Homer Simpson version of what doesn't kill me makes you stronger. Right. And Dr. Ever going, Oh no, you're weak as a kitten. <laughs> like you, if you had a stroke, you don't, don't, don't get up and go for a run because you should be stronger. Now there's an opportunity to, to grow because of your knowledge of going through hardships or to build up some, some skills or some humility or a lot of things, good things can come through hardships. Here's another thing. Everybody goes through hardships and everybody learns and acquires skill over time. And maybe we overcook the relationship between those two in a direct and factorial way. It's, it's good to do because you're, you're going to have hard things. You're going to, Go through that, and you will probably, hopefully, over the long term, most people do become stronger and better at dealing with obstacles in your life. But eh, because of the one, because of the other, eh, maybe I don't know. But this is all a another situation. There's a lot of them in the church where not only a desire for pithiness, but a desire for super clean narratives. Yep, is really maybe doing a number on you, and no, nothing is a super clean narrative. The most particularly the ones you've been uh, constructed, you've been presented with, I can say, and not necessarily that people are being dishonest, but it didn't happen that way. Yeah. You think of, you know, think of anybody you actually know a lot about their life, a historical figure or a famous person. If, and if they made a biopic about it, they left out a lot of stuff. They kind of conformed it so that it seemed like, you know, this happened. And then immediately this happened when they, if you know about that, you go, well, it was seven years between them not getting that record contract and getting on TV or whatever the thing is, but eh, it doesn't really make for a good story. So don't, uh, don't also don't mistake people's, uh, very clean example stories for a way you should be living your life. There's, there's an opportunity to, to grow in hard things, mostly because the alternative is just giving up, which we certainly don't want you to do. So might as well keep moving forward, um, but you don't have to like it. That's one main thing about learning from hardship. You don't have you don't actually have to have a great attitude about it every step of the way. You can grumble and stumble your way through it, and that that counts just as much. So, with that said, we're going to fill out the uh, end this episode here with a little something I like. We like to call Christian nonsense roundup. <laughs> Maybe not full emergencies, but uh, some lightning. Uh, a little lightning round of some recent insanity we have come across in the Christian world, particularly on the internet. And I, I don't want to sound uh, 
like a super old person, but I I'm, think I have to say specifically, TikTok's becoming a problem for the Christians. Yeah. And not like, oh, this is terrible in China or whatever. Like, it's fine. It's a social media platform. There are those of us who, you know, have made it through MySpace and Facebook and Tumblr and Twitter, and it, it, it's fine. There's new ones. It's cool. Um, But the opportunity for someone to have uh, the short distance between thought and then making a video that I thought was a good idea is particularly seems to set up some pitfalls for the Christians. And how? We have some examples here. One is a a gentleman, Craig, a Craig Brown doing a thing called improv preaching. And it's worse than you think. He says, I'm surrounded by missionaries, all white people. So that's, we have a concern from the jump. And he does a video and he says, there's a couple of these. The one like, nice and oh, this guy, and he gives him a verse and they say, preach a thing. And the guy says, oh, you should. You should live all out for Jesus, which doesn't have anything to do with the verse he's saying, because it's like, if you don't, it's like an unbaked cookie. And people, some people like unbaked cookies, but fully baked cookies are better. And then he holds his pen as if it were a microphone and drops it. And all the uh, 20 to 23-year-old white people around him uh, do like that old, like they're on that old MTV show, Wilding Out. And like, do a, oh! And it makes me sad. What happens when you ask a bunch of missionaries to improv preach? Let's see. Hey, John, improv preach. Romans 12, 1 says, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to lay down your life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your logical worship. Go. Oh, man. So let me tell you what. If Jesus paid it all for us by dying on the cross, our only response could be laying down our lives fully for him. Anything else is like a half-baked cookie. Although some of you like half-baked cookies, the best cookie is a fully cooked cookie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, th- here's the thing. There's like 20 people in the background of this video, and four of at least four of them look as embarrassed as they should be, which is good. <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah. Th- Again, young Christians, and I've been part of that group, it's fine. There's there's a very high level of this is this will be really cool. Yeah. And it's not, but that's fine. Lots of fun things aren't cool. You just don't need to film it and put it out into the world in the hopes that everyone will be blown away by your not really an improv and not really a sermon. But but I had a deep thought. How else will people access my deep thought? You, well, uh, they don't need to, and you didn't. Oh. But I did and the also, mic drop thing at the end. That signifies the deep thought. That, I mean, maybe. that's Maybe LL Cool J did have the original deep thought. Who knows? Thank you. Uh, Jed and I, in, in previous jobs, have had actually had to do, like, the, oh, no, someone didn't show, Phil, for five to ten minutes on this topic. And... You, it's not, it's not like an amazing mic drop moment. It's, well, I have the idea of what a sermon structure is and here's a nice helpful thought. And well, I'm getting the signal from the back that they that the person who's supposed to go next isn't here yet. So I'll fill with a little story, maybe double back around to that point. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's workmanlike. Yeah. It's what I would call it. It's not, it's not a Lin-Manuel Miranda style hip hop explosion of, of flights of fancy. 
<laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> oh, it's wanted to be a hip hop explosion of Flights of Fancy. No, Flights of Fancy is a terrible, terrible name for a rap group, but it's, you know, maybe, maybe in the next Disney movie. And that brings us to one. I, I will cut in the audio of this one. Um, this is even worse. The woman who clearly thinks she's making a very deep point. She talks about how when you, when you do a naughty thing, you open, and I quote, the black bag of sin. Okay. She says you start with a, with a little white lie, and then you, you lie to your mom, because it's clearly aimed at children. And he says, but then you, you open the black bag of sin. Let's reach in the bag to the two things I put in there beforehand. And she literally pulls out a slip of paper with the word fornication written on it. And says, you don't even know how it happened. You, you've gone from a white lie to your mom to fornication. If you don't know how your fornication is happening, that's the biggest that, problem with your fornication before we get into yeah, any moral element. That's concerning. That's Deeply that's not concerning. Good. And then she says, because you can't stop a fornication, says, well, and now you're, you go back into the black bag of sin and murder. We went <laughs> from my lie to my mom <laughs> to murder <laughs> in two steps. Oh, man. Wow, little Timmy was very busy that day. With that being said, let me give you a visual of how sin works. So you lied to your mom today. You've opened the black bag of sin, and now you must reach in. You pull out fornication. Whoa, what a jump. A white light has now turned into fornication. However, you don't notice the jump or the darkening of your soul. So now you're on round two, reaching into the black bag of sin again, and this time you pull out murder. You see, you're not going to know how you got from that white lie to murder, but that is how the cycle of sin works. It never stops pulling you in. It never stays still. It will drag you down and down and down until your end is death. No attempt to fill in like the, the narrative. Cause we've all heard the, the scare sermon from the youth pastor about how like, oh, well it starts with this and then you get mixed in with the wrong crowd. And before you know it, and, or like maybe dare, if you did dare when you were a kid. There's a whole thing of like, oh, he just thought they wanted to play basketball. And then all of a sudden he's doing a gangland style execution shooting. But they at least like <laughs> tell the story. This lady has a literal what appears to be like a purse and says the black bag of sin. You did a lie and now you're doing fornication. We, you have to. You can't in medias res that you have to fill in the bits. <laughs> what was the white lie? related to the fornication or are we just, I don't think so. Cause they hadn't done the form. They hadn't apparently to this point had never opened the bag of sin. <laughs> and the first thing that came out was fornication. <laughs> also, I'm pretty sure if you're lying about your fornication and murder, you have, you have moved past the little white lie phase. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Definitionally. I don't know if you can tell a little white lie about, about murder. You know, in the spirit of, you know, nonlinear cinema and, you know, uh, Kubrick and Tarantino and whatnot, like, is there a chance that we have these jumbled out of order? Because we're saying white lie, fornication, murder, but it didn't have to be in that order, y'all. So, like, no. there there could be a whole, like, like this could be, and it's the, the black bag of sin, like, you know what it is? It's a film noir. It's a Ooh. film noir, Matt. She just didn't yeah, realize it. it. Is. The Black Bag of Sin, starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Dude, this could be a whole thing, man. That's right. That It's a double feature with the, the Maltese Falcon, followed by the Black Bag of Sin. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, 
Dude, I would I would watch that movie. Like that's that's got potential, bro. I think if you put the right noir music under it and changed this most just kept most of this lady's weird TikTok script but put it in kind of Humphrey Bogart um voiceover, it kind of works of like it's all started with a white lie and the next thing I knew fornication and murder. <laughs> Never should have opened that bag. Dude, that is the perfect opening. The perfect to a film noir. Like that yeah, is brilliant. Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah. Well, look, we we came into this and I I thought, well, that's a little bit silly with the black bag of sin, but I am in. I am I'm climbing into the black bag of sin. I'm in terms of like watching No, the movie. Jed, there's fornication in there. <laughs> and murder apparently. <laughs> I like it. Also, could be a board game. <laughs> Ooh. Open the I, black bag of sin and see what comes out. I like the idea of an insanely dark, like almost Dante's Inferno level of dark board game for the family. That would be yeah. incredible. Yeah. Speaking of, of dark visions and unsettling images, uh, we have a tweet from uh, American evangelical Franklin Graham. Ah, we've previously mentioned uh, Mr. Graham, not for the many, many horrible things he said, but mainly for his weird apparent obsession with uh, uh, fast food chain Panda Express. Yes. So in a amazing example of what we will call the old switcheroo, uh, Franklin Graham was apparently recently in uh, Seoul, South Korea. And if you are thinking to yourself, why would Franklin Graham be in Seoul, South Korea, then you should find a Korean American friend who grew up Presbyterian and uh, ask them, Hey, do you have religious trauma? And then you will hear things that will link those two things together very, very well in your mind. Uh, so he's in Seoul, you know, home of uh, amazing food. And, you know, maybe he's getting the bulgogi or, you know, a nice kimchi. Uh, he has found a McDonald's, I quote, I was excited to try the at McDonald's in Seoul for lunch today. Great quarter pounder with cheese. Yeah. You know how long the flight from wherever in America Franklin Graham lives to Seoul is? It's a long flight, dog. And the most disconcerting thing about this is he's included a picture where he's holding up the hamburger towards the camera in a way that no human being has ever held a hamburger before with like his thumb and two fingers, just like he's about to push it Frisbee style towards the camera, but he's not in a McDonald's. No, he's in a hotel room. He's clearly in a hotel room and maybe even like a hotel conference room. Meaning somebody went to a McDonald's in Seoul and if it's not in the same building, we all know that the deliciousness range for McDonald's hamburgers is roughly 45 seconds. That's right. That's right. This man is eating a cold quarter pounder. Yep. In one of the largest metropolises in the world with a, a thriving local food culture. Yes. And this dude's sitting in the Radisson Inn in Seoul with a warm quarter pounder being like, Oh, the bounties of the Lord are are indeed great, my friends. <laughs> well, I have to say it's true in this picture. It's true in, you know, when he was hawking uh, Panda Express before. Like, it's the only time I've ever seen him look legitimately happy. 
is when he's posing with fast food. That's true. Like, I mean, he's clearly excited about this. And A, I understand. And B, yeah, far be it for us to, uh, to, to dump on t- the little joys in life. Well, it's just like for, for Franklin, like, dude, you don't seem to be very happy with the other stuff that you're doing, which makes sense because it, there's a lot of problems with the other stuff that you do. It's all but, based in fear and anger. Exactly right. You really enjoy fast food, buddy. You could just, you could just drop the rest of it and just enjoy fast food. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's actually a thing that you could do. Like if you still want to be the public eye, you could just launch Franklin Graham's fast food picks. You could, sure. that's a thing you could do. And you could become a travel blogger who goes around the world eating fast food. Like, yes, it's not too late for that dream to, to become reality. My man, you could just do that. Or being that you apparently only like Panda Express and McDonald's, you probably don't have to leave the greater Raleigh, North Carolina area. <laughs> but, Jed, I'm glad you brought up the idea of a Christian evangelical um, fast food review. Uh-oh. Because you, you might wonder, what would you, what would that rating scale look like? Obviously, you'd have the normal taste and whatever, but how would you one differentiate it? And I think in that, we have a potential example. Because, as you may have heard recently, um, uh, the right-wing internet weirdos found out that Chick-fil-A has had an officer of diversity, equity, and inclusion for, I think, like the last three or four years. Oh, no, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. So to quote a uh, Turning Point USA contributor named, apparently named Morgan, if this... um, Videos to be believed, which I point out only because it's apparently spelled M-O-R-G-O-N-N. Morgan. Which does sound like the name of a demon from Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. You yeah. have awoken Morgan. <laughs> so we're working with that. But, and I quote from the, the video, and this goes back to the TikTok point. Chick-fil-A, you are no longer the Lord's chicken. You're actually the woke chicken. And I'm really upset about it as a Christian woman. We're taking this boycott Chick-fil-A thing seriously. If you find yourself saying out loud as part of your job, no longer the Lord's chicken, you've actually become the woke chicken. And that doesn't sound insane to you. Yeah. That's a sign things have gone badly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's time to rethink some things, Morgan. Yeah. And again... And I look, I like Chick-fil-A, uh, a nice spicy chicken sandwich as much as does the next person. They make a fine product. I'd like to be able to buy it on Sundays because, you know, that's when you want it most. But it is also telling that the full freak out was, hey, they're not racist. Yep. Also, yeah. I will point out, uh, this is not in, in the, the notes here, but we, we noticed uh, sometime after that came out, apparently a Cracker Barrel put out a pride Facebook post with like a rainbow uh, rocking chair out front. And um, I'm putting this forth out there and Jed, you can tell me if I'm, if I'm just insane, is it possible between the Bud Light, the Chick-fil-A and the Cracker Barrel? This is all part of some kind of uh, department of health and human services plan to, (laughs) to reduce heart disease in the American South. Oh goodness, 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 goodness! I also yeah. point out that the the end of Morgan's video here is they go to Canes, 
raisin canes, if you're not familiar, which two things, one, leave canes out of this, you weirdos. It's delicious. Also, I looked it up, and uh, if you Google uh, raisin canes, diversity, equity, diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, uh, the first thing you find is a uh, LinkedIn post, not from theirs, but of uh, a diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist thanking uh, the CEO of Canes for inviting them to speak at one of their corporate events. So, Aha! Uh-huh. Yeah. Don't look into it too hard. Yeah. Don't get that invested in the chicken being racist, guys. That's that's not healthy. Nope. It's rare. And I'm, I'm de- I guarantee you we've never ended an episode to say that in this way. Weirdo young TikTok people in this one way. Be more like Franklin Graham. <laughs> he did not Google to find. I'm guarantee you McDonald's has a DEI officer. They are huge on the the idea of uh, diversity. Is that possibly because a lot of their workforce is in from extremely economically underprivileged areas? Well, that's neither here nor there at the moment. They're they're very into that, but he doesn't care. He's eating his quarter pounder. That's all he he's, wants. He's loving that quarter pounder. He's he's loving Just, that quarter pounder. Mugging the mugging for the camera, about to dive into this room temperature quarter pounder, and have the only part of his day he's going to enjoy, and that is one lesson to learn from Franklin Graham. Yeah, don't be so committed to your weirdness that it ruins fast food for you. <laughs> and on that note, we will bid you farewell. Thank you for joining us. We're going to take out with the song this week. But first, if you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumble.com slash ask if you want to keep that entirely anonymous. Being that Lee could not join us this week, we'll take out with a Lee song. This is called Changing Me. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. Well, I thought that knowing you meant walking a straight line. But what good would that do for a heart as dark as mine? I've never been so glad to be wrong. And I'm not who I was, cause you're not who I expected. And I am new because, Lord, you say I'm